You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group. American National Insurance, and Spiritless. At the beginning of this podcast, I ask, what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? While the To Dine For podcast provides the restaurants and the people, where are you getting your wine? Uncork.com is an online wine shop that brings the best part of buying wine right into your home. This carefully curated collection of wines range in price to accommodate every budget, from everyday best buys all the way to very special occasion wines. Uncork.com features family-owned wineries from all corners of the globe, California to France, Washington to Italy. If you're looking to broaden your wine horizons, learn about new producers and get great customer service, just like your local wine shop, head over to uncork.com. Use code TDF20 to get 20% off your first purchase. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Before we get to the podcast, I want to share the story of three young women who are carving their own path in the beverage industry. They started a company called Spiritless. Their first product is called Kentucky 74, and it's a non-alcoholic bourbon. You can use it as the base for so many delicious mocktails or drink it by itself on the rocks. What I like to do is go halvesies, meaning you mix it with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail. I put a little honey, cinnamon, and an orange slice, and it is truly delicious. If you'd like to enjoy an evening cocktail with no guilt, you can use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and creative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Harlan Coben. Those voices never go away, those voices of doom, those voices telling you you're no good. The key is not to let them paralyze you, but to let them spur you on. Harlan Coben is the number one New York Times author of 33 novels, including Win, The Boy from the Woods, Run Away, Fool Me Once, and Tell No One. His books are published in 45 languages, and he currently has 75 million books in print worldwide. 
Harlan is the creator and executive producer of several Netflix television dramas, including Stay Close, The Stranger, Safe, The Five, The Innocent, and The Woods. He's the winner of the Edgar Award, the Seamus Award, and Anthony Award, the first author to win all three. He is an international best-selling author that has been called by the New York Times ingenious, poignant and insightful by the Los Angeles Times, consistently entertaining by the Houston Chronicle, and a must-read by the Philadelphia Inquirer. If you have any aspirations of writing or you're just fascinated by the creative process, you must listen to this interview. It's a great place to start. Please enjoy my interview with Harlan Coben. Hi, Harlan. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. I'm so excited for our conversation and thrilled to join yeah. you. Um, I normally start this podcast by asking the guest where their favorite restaurant is. And your team is so great that they've already sent me where you love. So kudos to your team. And they tell me it's Albert's in Hohokus. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. When we're picking for this for this podcast. <laughs> yes, I have a number of favorites, but I'm we'll, sure we'll, we'll give Albert a little bit of a plug today. Please do, and tell me why do you love Albert's? You know, Albert's has first of all a tremendous variety of of food. They have the sort of comfort favorites that I always kind of get, like uh, the short ribs and the chicken milanese. But somehow, oh, yeah. I don't know how, he also has excellent pizza. It's a local place that's easy to park at. It's always got a friendly atmosphere. <laughs> one of those everyone knows your name kind of place. You know, nothing super fancy, always has interesting specials, but everything he does, he does well. Yes. And isn't it funny, as we get older, finding a good parking space is crucial, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's also, from my house, it's less than a half a mile. So most of the time, not today when we have all this ice and wind, um, I can walk it. Yes. People don't realize that uh, New Jersey is the home of the diner. And if folks have never been to a New Jersey diner, they're really missing out because just the plethora of options is overwhelming. Yeah, do a, we could do a show on that. We have Matthew's <laughs> Diner around here, the American Diner, where I just filmed uh, part of a TV pilot down in West Orange, the Heritage Diner, which is now called the Ritz Diner in Livingston, <laughs> New Jersey, where I grew up. And there's one pretty much on on every highway that you can find around here. It's a state law that you have to have a diner. Um, it's usually owned by somebody Greek and has yes. a <laughs> picture of either George Stephanopoulos or Ernie Anastas on the public <laughs> cash register. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's great. I just marvel how, at how they can keep everything in stock to make everything. I mean, how do they have all those it's ingredients? Unbelievable. It is. Like, I'll have the, the Haddock Francaise and a cheeseburger <laughs> deluxe, please, you know. Exactly, exactly. Folks that aren't uh, are listening to us and are, do not live in New Jersey, don't know what we're talking about, you have to visit, you have to experience a true Jersey diner. Also, you said you grew up in Livingston, so I'd like you to kind of transport me there to how you grew up. You could take me, if you want, to Seymour's, where you spent time having milkshakes with your dad. Yes, yeah, Seymour's Luncheonette, which is a diner of sorts. Seymour's was known, probably still, uh, for the potato salad. It's mm. a potato salad. But we went there quite frequently for lunch. It had the counter. It was almost like the old-fashioned ones that you'd used to find in like a Walmart or yes. Woolworths or those yes. sort of things. They were so great. But as a kid, you know, we'd go, I'd buy a pack of baseball cards. We'd do the milkshake with dad kind of a thing. 
Um, and if mom was in the mood and up earlier, then we would probably go for the entire lunch. We'd buy our Sunday New York Times and Star Ledger newspapers there. The Newark Star, Star Ledger is our largest paper I'm in New Jersey. You would run into at least five to six people that you knew. Usually they were about to attend the town football game. It sounds like I grew up in a Norman Rockwell painting. It does. It does. (laughs) (laughs) Atmospheric. There is a little bit of that. Well, you are a writer, my God. Um, So how would you characterize your childhood if you you had to? You know, uh, I think it's Flaubert who had this wonderful saying that I use, which is, Sort of be regular, normal, and bourgeois in your real life so you can be violent and original in your work. Mm. I don't think there's much spectacular or unusual about my childhood mm. that you would think would lead to this sort of books that I that I end up telling. I, you know, my great parents um, who both died fairly young. I grew up mm. with two brothers in, in, in a very middle class, uh, probably upper middle class environment for the most part. Born in Newark, moving out to the suburbs of Livingston. We first got there. It was mostly farmland. Sheeps would wander through your yard. Now it's all development. Every house has been done. They're all split levels where you walk in. There's the kitchen on the right. There's one downstairs den bedroom on the left. I mean, they're all look very, very much the same, all built between 1960 and 1970. So you have that sense of not gorgeousness. But the interesting thing is in hindsight, there was two weird urban legends about my town that I that, that I grew up with. One was that there was a secret Nike nuclear missile base that was located <laughs> behind barbed wire fence behind Riker Hill Elementary School. Hello, Stranger Things. Yes. And the other strange one was that a leading mafiosa guy named Richie the Boot, Boriardo, who they based a lot of the Sopranos and Godfather on, lived next door to that base um, and had lion heads and stone lion heads in front. And if you crossed this property, you could be killed. And they were burning bodies in a furnace in the back. Here's the interesting thing. When I grew up, I found out that both urban legends were true. Oh, no. Are you serious? Yes. You can actually visit the old Nike Nike nuclear base now as an art colony. And um, Richie the Boots House, um, according to his grandson in, in his most recent book, yeah, there was a furnace back there. Someone else, of course, lives there now, and the property's been divided up a little bit. But both of those things have played in novels of mine and in TV shows of mine. So I think I grew up, that's probably part of it. I grew up in a town that on the outside looked very perfect Americana, but underneath it, there was a lot going on. Interesting. So let me ask you this. Which came first? Your knowledge that you were good at writing and that you really had a gift for writing or your fantastical imagination? Did they happen simultaneously or which one hit you first? Jeez, that's a good question. I would probably say around the same time. I was actually, when I was younger, a better math student than I was an English student. Were you? Three of three of my one of my kids is a writer. The other three, one is a literally going to be a rocket scientist working at NASA. <laughs> the other is at Brown University. She's majoring in computational biology. I still don't know what that means. She tries <laughs> to explain it, but I'm trying to remind her dad's not that smart. My wife is a pediatrician, and my other son is uh, working for you know some same kind of job as a civil engineer. 
So uh, I don't know which case. I, I always had a very active imagination. Mm-hmm. I always sort of like to make things up. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a problem actually in, in society, not, not to whine about today's kids, blah, blah, blah. But with phones, we never have time for boredom. And yes. I think boredom is valuable. I think a lot of times I spend a lot of hours wandering through woods near my house and imagining the worst, which has proved profitable for me. <laughs> Yeah, you would, you would probably be on your phone a little bit more. Yeah, that's so interesting. Stuff up. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. Time and space. When you have that time to think and to let your mind wander, that's when you can create and be creative. So you you start to write. Is there? Is it seventh grade? Is it eighth grade? Is it high school that you have an inner knowing? Hey, I've got a knack for this. It was later. It was during. It was in college. I realized that writing was a lot easier for me than taking tests and studying. So really? all the classes I became a political science major, mostly because they never t- had tests you had to study for. You had to write five-page papers, and I could do that in front of the TV um, fairly easily. I was not one of those. I mean, you probably have interviewed a number of writers, and I'm not knocking other writers, but they always have that moment when they go. I always knew I'd be a writer. Yeah. When I was a three-month-old fetus, a pen formed in my mother's womb. And I, you know, I, I was a lot later to it than that. And you know, then they always tell the story, oh, when I was six years old, children would gather around <laughs> me in the playground as I told them stories. <laughs> my neighborhood got beaten up for that, and I didn't grow up in a tough neighborhood. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. You said that you majored in political science. I'm wondering, when people are really good at writing, there's really always this sense of doubt that you can make a living at it, that you, this is an act. It seems like a fantasy, a dream career to work as a writer. Uh, so few people make it to actually make any money. And then I, I recently read your article that you wrote for the New York Times about your dad and the, how yeah. he didn't like his job. In fact, you said he hated his job. And I'm wondering how that informed you thinking about your career and your journey. And did you, did you have a deep sense of, I don't want to be in a situation where I hate my job? Um, yes, I think definitely. My father's death, and he was, he was, he was younger than I am now when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things he said to me and my brothers was, try not to work for anybody else. If you can. Mm. Why do you think he said that? Because, you know, he, at the age of 57, he kind of got screwed over. And after 20 years with a company, the company sold and he was out of a job at the age of 57. And that stress, I think, caused was part of what caused him to, to die of a heart attack at 59. Mm-hmm. So that was part of it. At the same time, though, I was I went into it ridiculously practical. So I had applied and was going to go to the University of Chicago Law School and wow. on the side. And then my grandfather had needed help with his business, and he sort of talked me into it. And thank goodness he didn't, trying to help him for a year or two. So I was trying to be both. And I don't think you have to be just one. I think too many people just quit their job, and then they try to write. The truth of the matter is, even I wrote my first two books while I was working full time. But instead of taking 12 months to write, it maybe took me 14 months to write. You just have to make the time. And if you don't have the time, whenever I hear someone, and I'm hoping I'm kicking somebody's ass out there, who says, oh, I don't have the time to write. If you don't have the time to write, you're not a writer. Mm. I don't care how busy you are. I woke up early in the morning and wrote. I wrote at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. Mary Higgins Clark, who was a dear friend of mine, a woman that I, oh, I miss her every day still. When Mary was 37 years old and had five children, her husband died. The next day, her 
mother-in-law died. So Mary woke up and rode from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. before the kids woke up. So don't tell them you don't have time to write. You do. Mm -hmm. So I worked a full-time job while writing my first two or three novels. Um, Then I lost that job and I took a chance. But really, you don't have to quit everything to write. I think, in fact, it's almost a negative. Living out in the real world makes you use that time that you get is more valuable. And so you use it more. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National Agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. At the beginning of this podcast, I ask, what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? While the To Dine For podcast provides the restaurants and the people, where are you getting your wine? Uncork.com is an online wine shop that brings the best part of buying wine right into your home. This carefully curated collection of wines range in price to accommodate every budget, from everyday best buys all the way to very special occasion wines. Uncork.com features family-owned wineries from all corners of the globe, California to France, Washington to Italy. If you're looking to broaden your wine horizons, learn about new producers and get great customer service, just like your local wine shop, head over to uncork.com. Use code TDF20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Now back to our conversation. 75 million books in print. It's almost staggering how much success you've had as a writer. I'm sure even to you, it's, I mean, I know you're fully aware of it, but I'm sure you're like, wow, I'm really glad I went in this direction. Can you take me through a little bit of your writing process? Because to sit down and write for hours on end for most people, sounds like a a complete chore. Give me a typical Harlan Coben day of writing. Well, it is is a chore. I mean, I think your best bet is to treat it as a job. And like a janitor can't wake up in the morning and say, oh, you know, today I can't do pipes. I just can't do pipes. (laughs) And so while that does happen, I I beat myself up. A lot of writing is also beating yourself up, insecurity, Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Only bad writers think they're good. I, all the writers that I know that are successful sit there and think that they stink and they got to get better. And there's parts, you know, I'm writing a book right now. So there'll be moments while I'm writing it where I go, oh, my God, this is terrible. I lost it. 
I was so good before. What happened to me? And then five minutes later, I'll go, oh, my God, this book is the best thing I've ever <laughs> I'm on to something. Right. I'm finally got it. People are going to read my old stuff, which is no good, and not give this work of Shakespearean proportions a chance. And that, those voices never go away, those voices of doom, those voices telling you you're no good. The key is not to let them paralyze you, but to let them spur you on. You know, this, it's a very strange dynamic being a writer. And, and I know you're a journalist, Kate, so you get mm-hmm. this. But there's a part of you that does say, wow, this is garbage. I can't believe I'm writing this and people are going to read it. While you have the hubris to say, I'm going to write and talk to you for 500 pages and you're going to pay me to listen. <laughs> and you have those, those feelings are completely contradictory. And you have them as a writer at the exact same time. And so do you set out blocks? I mean, do you have a structure to your day where you're like, you know what, 7 a.m., butt in seat, let's go? Or what's your MO? I try to and I do for stretches. I'm a streak writer. Uh, There's a lot of writers you will talk to who do have a great schedule. Um, I talked to John Grisham. uh, Mm -hmm. We we talk about the process. Uh, We've done a couple things together, interviews. And John, like at exact same time in the morning, he has a house behind his house, like a cottage where it has no internet, no access to that. He goes there at X hour, he leaves at Y hour. And I kind of wish I could do that, but I don't. Yeah. I also don't have a space. So right now I'm working in what looks like you could see a greenhouse. It does, and yes. Yeah, and it is something of that. But that won't work for me for long and then I'll move around. Before COVID especially, I like to change up. So to me, it's a little bit like, like streak writing. So I'll use a Starbucks or a library or I used a, there was a deli, there was a, a table next to the deli at my local stop and shop. And I'd actually sit there coming home smelling like olive loaf because it was working. You were writing in the stop and shop? Yeah, they have like a little <laughs> coffee bar table there and I would take it up every day. And that worked for two or three months and then it stops working. I, it's like I'm riding a horse as hard as I can. Yes. And eventually the poor horse collapses. And I, instead of helping the horse, I look for the next horse. Oh, that's amazing. Sometimes I write night, day, whenever. So you're really inspired by environment and changing environment and having that change of environment to kind of spur creativity. Yeah. The, the biggest example I give is, is this is a number of books ago, when I was writing The Stranger, which some people have read and maybe some people have seen on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I was toward the end of that and I took an Uber into New York because when Ubers were sort of new and it was the first time I had used one. Mm-hmm. And I felt tremendous guilt about spending the money. So I'm justifying it in my head. You know how we all do that? Well, yes. by the time I pay for parking in New York... <laughs> So I'm sitting in the back and I'm feeling guilty and I take out my pad because sometimes I write on a pad, sometimes I write straight on the computer. Mm -hmm. Again, whatever makes it works. Mm -hmm. And I started to doodle some stuff out and it worked really well. So for three weeks, I took Ubers wherever I went and I wrote in the back of them. (laughs) And that worked for a while. So whatever works, you know, there's times I like- That's an expensive habit, Harlan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I'm still making a little more than the Uber driver. So I would find creative uses for it, but it was still cheaper than rent in an office, let's put it that way. I mean, inner time, sometimes I'll be taking over long flights to Europe or something like that on book tours, and I always write well on airplanes. Yes. So I'm trying to find excuses to get on airplanes, anything that works, you know, yes. I'm going to anything that will work. Well, this is sort of a pedestrian question, but I think it's a question that the average person has about your work. You are a master of a plot twist, and you have so many rich storylines. How do you think of them all? 
I mean, there's so many of them. Like, where do you start? Where do you get the inspiration? Are you watching something or are you a, a friends with a sports agent or where does it all begin? Uh, really everything. Part of anything you do, of course, is nature and nurture, right? So one of the nature things that I have is I have an innate ability to see and come up with plot twists. If you don't like a lot of plot twists, I'm not your guy. Right. <laughs> Wondering, should I read a Harlan Coben book? Should I watch a Harlan Coben Netflix series? If you don't like twists, I'm not your guy. Amen. That's that's what I do. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of it is also, I, my default mechanism is to think what if. Mm -hmm. All the time, no matter what. So, you know, for example, I'll go back to The Stranger. I had seen a website that was that was for faking pregnancies. I mean, there's actually a website for this. Now, they, they couch it in language like, Maybe you're going to have a surrogate you don't want people to know, mm. or you're going to have fun at parties and fool your boyfriend. Or mm. That's a pretty psycho girlfriend who's going to do that, but let's go with it. But my mind is always like, well, what if, you know, what if a man was told, you know what, your wife faked her last pregnancy. She really wasn't pregnant. What if that bomb was dropped? And I just, I'm always thinking that way. And then well, what kind of story can I get out of it? Who would tell him that? What would be the repercussions? Why would his wife do it? Did she do it? And so my mind is constantly churning these thoughts over and over in my head until I come up with a story. Mm -hmm. And if that sounds impressive, it's not because that's all I do. <laughs> I don't get up, I don't go to the pharmacy and sell pens. I don't have to deliver cardboard, but all I do is sit around doing that. That's, that's it, that's my whole job. Yeah, and it, what you just described in fact, isn't thinking of ideas, it's asking questions. Because you just said that all you do is think of something, like you came across the, uh, the, the concept for your book that became a, a Netflix show about faking a pregnancy, and then you ask a million questions that lead to all these different outcomes. So it really is, you are asking yourself questions of where this story could, could take you. Exactly. And I know since you do a lot of, you know, obviously dining is your thing. Yeah. Chefs have the same kind of answer for how they come up with different foods. It's a lot of times asking what if, right? Mm -hmm. They start with this and then they say, well, what if I added that? And I think even though it doesn't, they wouldn't naturally go together. And I do the same thing I'm doing. And how can I mix and match a bunch of things like this? Mm. So in the case of the my, my most recent book, the one that's coming out in March, The Match, I wanted to do those DNA genealogy sites. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do, because I watched recently some of these bachelor type reality shows with my daughters. I wanted to talk about them. I want to talk about Instagram influencers. I want to talk about a bunch of things. And is there a way of mixing and combining these ideas into a compelling story that's going to grip you? And are you doing research? Because you do, are you are so immersed in these stories. It's as if you're there. It's as if you've had a life of a sports agent. What do you do to kind of fill in and create color? I confess to being a lazy researcher. And I'll, and if you want, I'll actually defend that position to those out there who want to create. My, my advice to you is to do less research, not more. Mm. Um, but most of my research involves calling people. Because if I read an article on being a journalist who does a podcast, I will read something, but I'm much better off, Kate, calling you and asking you a few questions. Sure. Because normally you'll give me that one little nugget mm -hmm. that I can use that will make it feel real, right? That's not necessarily what people think being a podcaster mm -hmm. is. So that's, I, I'm big on, on that. But I think that too many writers spend too much time doing research because research is more fun than writing. <laughs> In a way, it's easier, right? It's Certainly. Easier. So it's kind of like, oh, I got to write this scene that takes place on Fifth Avenue, New York. Ah, oh, but 
I got to get on a plane and take, go to Fifth Avenue. I have to actually walk the street. No, no, no. You've been there before. You can look at it on Google Maps. Do it now. And then later, go and visit and change around the scene based on what you see. Don't let research be an excuse not to write. And the second thing that happens when you do too much research is you get so fascinated by the subject, and we're not that fascinated, that you start boring us with too many details. Yes. What Fifth Avenue is like. I need a line or two that's going to bring it to life. I don't need a travel guide. And so don't do that much research. Remember to tell the story and then worry about the research later on. That's my advice to those. Because everybody else will tell you to do a ton of research. So just to be contrarian, I will give you the opposite side. That's great, Harlan. That's really great. You know, I always try to get to the heart of what people think they're good at. And I think you kind of alluded to the fact that you're really known for your plot twists. If there's something to add to that, please do. But my next question would be, you know, after you've written so many New York Times bestsellers, right? And the, the thrill of seeing that book go to the number one spot and seeing it become a Netflix show and having these sort of mountaintop writing experiences. I'm just wondering what gives you the most professional pleasure for your career at this moment? Uh, that's a really great question. What I've managed to do, though, I think is to never get jaded about that. Hmm. So if my book hits one or like stay close on Netflix actually hit number one worldwide. I say that both to brag and promote the show. Yes. But also that I still get the, the childlike excitement. When that box of books comes in, the match will, the, the finished copies of the match will probably be here in the next two or three weeks. I will still do the box opening slowly. I will still take it out. I will still appreciate it 30 something books later. If I see it in the store, I will still stop and be amazed. If I'm at an airport, I'll still secretly sign the copies with a wistful smile on my face. When I put on Netflix to watch a show, not my show, another show, but I see the poster for my show pop up on the trending screen, yes. I still get jazzed. And if you don't, learn to do that. Learn to have that appreciation. Part of that is also that I got to build slowly. This didn't happen mm -hmm. overnight for me. My 10th novel, I say that again, not the first, not the second. My 10th novel was my first New York Times bestseller. 10th. Mm. It gave me a great appreciation being able to move up the ladder slowly in hindsight to have a great appreciation for how lucky I am. And what jazzes me now is also that reader that will reach out to me saying, you know what? I was going through chemo and I was reading your book to distract myself. Or yes. we as a family were able to gather and sit around all together and watch Stay Close and discuss what this was about. That's this part that, that, that still excites me. Sure, everything about it still excites me. Uh, you know, the financial motivations are mostly gone because mm -hmm. I'm comfortable where I am now. Right. Though I never chase the dollar. It's always a mistake to chase the dollar. Chase the reader's hearts and the dollars will follow. But that's really still my motivation is that I want each book to be better than the one before. I want each show to be better than the one before. That is a gift, first of all, that you feel that way, that you have that gratitude. It speaks to who you are. And it also, I would say, is essential to your success because so many people have don't feel that way after all their success. And what good is it then, right? Like, what good is it if you don't feel that joy of creation? Because that's what you're doing. You're creating something new. I don't think we can underscore enough 
the power to transport people. You know, certainly with a when you go to a great restaurant and you sit down and you know you're out of your humdrum life and the hospitality is palpable and the food is delicious and you're in another world. That's a form of transportation, right? But what you do when you you really allow people to escape and escape their lives, can you talk about the power of that? I'm sure you get so many comments from folks, but it's really a privilege, isn't it? It's a privilege and an honor. And I, as I said, I, I know you're walking in a bookstore. There's 8 zillion books there. The fact that you choose mine mm. or when you put on your Netflix and there's 8 million shows there and you choose mine, you know, that's something I take, I take as a responsibility quite seriously. And I'm not happy if you're not happy. You know, mm. I feel like I let you down. So I work extra hard, sort of. I call my, what I, like the novels of immersion, the book that you take on vacation. But yes. Stay in your hotel room because you need to know. And I love when I get that feeling and the fact that I can give that feeling to other people. Yes. When you put the book down, they can put a gun to your head. and you, That's such a thrill for me. And that's still one of the really the driving forces. So when somebody says, you know, I, I watched your Netflix show, but I watched it in two days. I'm like, well, yeah, if you take more than that, maybe I didn't do it right. I want you to watch. All, I want you to binge all eight episodes. I don't want you to be able to. to divvy it up one every week. Yeah, I, so you bring up a really good point because it's it, it it is the magic of what you do. It's not just you're creating a great book that people enjoy reading. It is a level, especially with the plot twist of when you compel someone, that's all they want to do when they get into a great book and you really they can't put it down. That is another level, isn't it? It's flattering. And again, I love when that when I get that feeling. I mean, so I never like really influenced too much by anybody. I'm inspired by others. So even like you say, it could be a great restaurant. It could be a, a certain painting. It could be a movie. It could be a book. But when you have that feeling that when I get that feeling, it inspires me to want to give you that feeling. When you look at a lot of your shows, they're set in other countries. You've really become international. I mean, how did that happen? And why do you, I mean, why not center them all in uh, Hohokus or Newark or Nork, as you say? What was the inspiration for going global? Well, I'm filming one in New Jersey now, but I can't speak <laughs> about it quite yet. Okay. Um, Here's the thing. It started It started for me way back. I had sold the movie rights to a book called Tell No One, and they were really kind of messing it up, the Americans. I really didn't like the scripts and all that. And there was one chance to get it back, and this crazy French director named Guillaume Canet was calling me, and I loved his passion. I always had a, a love of France, and my book sold well there. So I ended up taking the chance, and I took it away from Hollywood and gave it to, to Guillaume. And it ended up being a terrific movie. Um, and I said, Guillaume, all credit to Guillaume Canet. It, it was nominated for nine of their Oscars, winning four. It was the top grossing film of the year. It's still sort of a legendary film. And thus began my sort of love affair with going overseas to do it. Part of it is budget. Part of it is who will make it. Part of it is, you know, how much interference I will get. So then that's what started. And most recently, Netflix, seeing that I sell a lot of books overseas, you mentioned how many books I sell, I actually sell more out of the United States than I do in. Do you really? Um, so wow. It was a great opportunity. I've done a couple of shows in the, France and the UK where that we could do shows in other places. And so far, Netflix, I have six shows on right now. Three are in English, mm -hmm. one's in Spanish, one's in Polish, and one's in French. And they're quite different. They're all different. I, I get to work with really unique talents in all of those countries and all of those places. And so it's been a complete and utter joy for me. And being able to make six shows in the last 
three or four years, which you could never do if you wanted them all to be situated in the United States. So um, it's been re- I've been really lucky and fortunate, and I've liked in some way all of them. I'm not there's not one where I go you know there's some I like more than others, but um, there's none that I I say wow that was really that really didn't live up to what I wanted. What was the experience of being a showrunner and an executive producer? Like here you are a writer, you're stepping into a role that involves an entirely different skill set. Did it come naturally, and did you enjoy it? First of all, they're not they're not that different in the sense that both are telling stories. Mm-hmm. I think the key for me was being able to let go of the novel. A novel is a novel and a TV show is a TV show. They are very different mediums. One is visual, one is internal. Mm-hmm. And so you have to accept that things that you wrote in the book are not going to work. So I think the worst adaptations work too hard to stay slavishly devoted to the original text. So I think the first thing that surprised people I work with was that I was the one normally making the suggestions. I, I wanted the stranger and the book was male. I wanted it to be female. I wanted, I, I'm the one who changes a lot of things around because I think visually it works better. I don't really worry what's gonna be true to the book. I worry about what's going to make the best TV show. So in that sense, it's still storytelling. And also here's the other thing that writers hate to admit. I grew up with a lot of TV. I mean, it drives me crazy when you ask writers for their influences and they're all like, um, a Proust. Uh, <laughs> I mean, nobody who grew up in my era did that. We watched Felix and Oscar and the Odd yes, Couple. We watched yeah. Batman on TV. We grew up with, you know, these, these, you know, Gilligan's Island and those sort of. <laughs> to deny that TV was an influence on your storytelling, it seems to me disingenuous. I'm sorry. From not some writers, maybe, but most of the writers, I think they're being disingenuous. So I grew up with TV, uh, and I see things visually. You mentioned when you wrote about your dad how fiercely loyal he was of his family, and that that seemed to be his number one trait that you remember most about him and love about him. When you think about what you impart to your children and what kind of, obviously they grew up with this famous writer as a father. And, but as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, they're all doing different things, working for Na- wanting to work for NASA uh, over at Brown University. I'm just wondering, what are some of the Harlan Coben mantras and what you, what you try to teach to your kids that they will remember? God, who knows what they remember? <laughs> well, I always tell them that man plans, God laughs. That's always, you, you, you know, you can do your best planning, but things are never going to work out sometimes better. In my mm-hmm. case, better in many ways mm-hmm. than what I had, had planned. But man plans, God laughs. The other thing I, I always tell them is, uh, or they, the ones they would probably quote, is you bring your own weather to the picnic. Mm. So whatever situation you are in, you are the one who can decide how good or bad it is. You bring your own weather to the picnic. So a lot of it is your attitude and how you handle it and how you frame where you are and, and what you are. And I guess the third one I tell them is that everyone you meet, from the richest, most successful person to the person that you're walking past on the street to anybody in the worst, best situation, everybody has hopes and dreams. And think about that when you look at a person. Everybody is a story. Every human being has hopes and dreams. And it's just a good way to go around life because we are not, not to lecture, but we are not empathetic enough to Mm -hmm. our fellow human beings in in, in all ways. But if you think about every person, that person you had a fight with and had road rage with on the road, that person who votes completely different than you do, whatever else, they have hopes and dreams too. Mm -hmm. And if you can kind of tap into that, that's that's something that you all share. I think it just makes us take an, an extra beat with people. So there's three things. 
from the Harlan Coben School of Being a Dad. I, I love it. I love it. I just thank you so much for this time. I wish we were in Hohokus. I wish we were at Albert's and diving into that extensive we'll menu. We'll do it soon, right? <laughs> I actually ordered from them last night the chicken milanese and the and the margarita pizza, the classics that they have there. But sounds when, fabulous. I will go. <laughs> sounds great, Harlan. Thank you for your time. Cheers to you on all your success. I wish you the very best, and of course, I'm always waiting for your next book. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to To Dine For the podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the podcast, American National, Spiritless, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.